Hi, this is Harris Laurie from Boreham and I'm speaking today on Joel chapter 2. Now, blink and you've missed some of these prophetic books at the end of Nabiim. We're already halfway through the book after this chapter. And this chapter 2 is really a story of two halves. The first 17 verses continue on from chapter 1. There are a set of prophecies concerning, well, God's judgment against the kingdom of Judah and then the people's response. And we see some really exceptionally vivid imagery as we read of a plague of locusts enveloping the land. And this plague is personified as a marauding army. Let me quote for you, verse five. Let's read it in Hebrew. Kakol marukavot al rasheha harim yurakedun kakol lahavesh ochla kash ka'amatsum eruch milchama. With a clatter as of chariots, they bound on the hilltops with a noise like a blazing fire, consuming straw, like an enormous horde arrayed for battle. And then after these verses, Joel exhorts the people to repent. And then the final nine verses of our chapter are verses of comfort, prophesying forgiveness and restoration in the land. And again, we see some very physical imagery here, but now depicting bounty and plenty. Uh, verses 21, 22. Fear not, O soil, rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great deeds. Fear not, O beasts of the field, for the pastures in the wilderness are clothed with grass. The trees have borne their fruit, fig tree and vine have yielded their strength. So it all ends quite nicely. But I want to pick up on Rabbi Joe's point from uh, one of his recordings on Hoshea, where he introduced us to this new idea in the books of the so-called minor prophets, of which Hoshea and Joel are too, that the Jewish people's existence in their land is actually imperiled. Because of, what, because of their conduct. And this chapter of Joel, this chapter two, extends that point, I think, by countenancing the very real possibility of God not responding to the people's repentance. And basically the relationship between God and the Jewish people being over. I.e. the second half of the chapter on forgiveness, etc., and restoration is by no means a foregone conclusion. I need to build this argument up a little bit. So if we read, first of all, uh, in our chapter, verses 12 to 14 and then 17, here goes. Yet even now, says the Lord, turn back to me with all your hearts and with fasting, weeping and lamenting. Rend your hearts rather than your garments and turn back to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in kindness and renouncing punishment. Who knows but he may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind for meal offering and drink offering to the Lord your God. And then verse 17, which follows a couple of verses later, which is describing the Jewish people's response uh, to the prophecy of destruction. Between the portico and the altar, let the priests, the Lord ministers, weep and say, Oh, spare your people, Lord. Let not your possession become a mockery to be taunted by nations. Let not the people say, where is their God? 
Now, one of the beauties of 929, I think, is that as we go through all of the chapters chronologically of the Tanakh, we begin to see how certain books and certain chapters are commentaries on earlier and sometimes later books and chapters. And here I think we see that because these verses that I've just read have very strong echoes of Shemot, chapters 32 to 34. Let's do a quick recap of those. They basically are Moses's rescue job of the Jewish people. So the Jewish people have just built a golden calf. God is absolutely incensed. He wants to destroy the Jewish people. And Moses argues God out of it successfully. So where are the echoes of this in our verses? Well, let's start with verse 17, um, where we have the priest saying, we shouldn't, uh, God, you shouldn't be destroying the Jewish people uh, because if you do, it might be that other nations say, oh, they don't have a God. He hasn't looked after, the God hasn't looked after them. And that has echoes of Shemot chapter two, verse 12. Let me just read that for you. There, Moses argues with God, let not the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he, God delivered them, only to kill them off in the mountains and annihilate them from the face of the earth. So that is exactly also Moses' argument to tell God not to destroy the Jewish people. God's reputation would be damaged. Okay, so that's the first echo. The second is that you may have noticed when I was reading um, earlier, verse 12, that we have here in Joel a list, albeit a shorter list, of God's attributes, right? He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in kindness. And that echoes the 13 attributes um, which we read about in Shemot chapter 34. Um, and as I said, they're not exactly the same. The ones in Joel are a shorter set. There certainly aren't 13 of them. But in some ways, they're actually more promising because our Joel version finishes with and renouncing punishment. Uh, let me get the Hebrew for that. V'nicham al hara'ah. And that doesn't appear in the list in Shemot, but that is the exact language which actually appears in chapter 32, verse 14 of Shemot, where we read Vayinachem Hashem al hara'ah, and God relented about the evil he was going to do to the Jewish people. So that marks a satisfying conclusion to the episode there. Moses successfully argues with God not to destroy the Jewish people. And so we have quite a promising echo of that in the attributes um, which appear in Joel. So we've seen some neat textual similarities here and it's all looking rosy, right? Well, no, because there are some subtle yet key differences between the two which paint a very different picture. Three points here. Number one, Moses' argument and the priest's arguments, even though they appear similar, are very different in tone and in form. Because in the Shemot version, Moses is arguing with God. He's presenting an assertive argument uh, and is confident about that. Whereas our priests in Joel are not actually arguing with God, they're weeping and they are, um, well, they're not, they're not arguing with him. There's no dialogue. Uh, they're weeping and trying to, make, trying to make a claim, but it's not a particularly confident one. So that's the first key difference. The second is that 
the quoting of God's attributes is actually in a very different context. In Shemot, in chapter 34, God teaches Moses the attributes as a reassuring sign of God's eternal covenant with the Jewish people. So it is God teaching Moses the attributes. But in Joel, it's the prophet Joel himself who's suggesting using this formula, if you like, as a tactic for repentance. It's not God who's teaching them. It's Joel suggesting that it might be something the Jewish people can do. And point three, here's the clincher, really. We've forgotten a little bit about verse 14 in our chapter in Joel, which starts off, Mi yodea yashuv v'nicham. Who knows? Maybe he will turn and relent. Mi yodea. It's actually a real unknown. Maybe God won't accept the people's repentance. So we've got quite key differences here. And yet we know that this picture in Job of me or Dea, who, who actually knows this uncertainty, wasn't the mainstream path taken in our Jewish sources and thought. Thankfully, God does forgive and restore us. And we see this from three pieces of evidence coming from our chapter itself. Number one, actually the whole second half of the chapter does present God forgiving and restoring the Jewish people in spite of this uncertainty presented in the middle of the chapter. Number two, really interestingly, there are some of the rabbinic commentaries on this verse of uncertainty in Joel couldn't leave us with the plain meaning that we can't be sure of God actually um, accepting the Jewish people's repentance. And rather, the Targum and Rashi both fill in the verse to read, he who knows that he has sins, he should return and repent. I.e. they change the subject from God to humans and adding this idea of humans knowing their sins. And so in that way, removing the uncertainty of God not forgiving the Jewish people because God is no longer the subject of the verse. And finally, point three, this chapter, chapter two of Joel, is the reading for our Haftorah on Shabbat Shuvah, the Shabbat between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. But where does the Haftorah start? At verse 15, verse 15 that is, i.e. just after our troublesome verse 14, to avoid that issue of uncertainty altogether and instead focus on the people's repentance and acceptance by God. I mean, after all, it'd be a bit of a downer if we weren't, if we were going to go into Yom Kippur um, with this lingering doubt of God actually accepting our repentance at all. So finally, to sum up, and based on this bit of analysis, I want to argue in favour of picking and choosing. Now, picking and choosing normally gets a bit of a bad press, right? But I think we've seen here that it has strong pedigree in our tradition. The Tanakh certainly has voices and counter voices, traditions and counter traditions, and maybe it's okay to back our winners. And we're in pretty good company if we do.